for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster, Monster Kid, Kid Radio. Radio. Here your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio! Black Clock Audio Tales is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and Found Item Clothing. Check them out at BunnySlippers.com and Found Item Clothing. Keep warm this winter, keep your feet warm, and uh, if you're over in the Southern Hemisphere, you can check out the cool t-shirts. Uh, yeah, anyone can check out the cool t-shirts, but hey, it's summertime down there. And hey, this is Black Clock Audio Tales, hosted by me, D.B. Spitzer. Just got back from the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival the other day. Man, was it good. Listen for an upcoming episode about the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival from The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, the other show that's on this podcast feed. And hey, check it out. We're going to have a new show coming up. It's not going to stay on this podcast feed, but we're going to feature it on this podcast feed at first. It's called... Articulate warbling, or that's not rave, that's not ranting, that's articulate warbling, with uh, past guest uh, Zach Ferguson, author, and uh, yeah, so why don't you sit back and listen to one of the many stories we're about to tell you for the rest of this week, uh, month, actually, we've got a month of ghost stories, so, you know, if, if you like ghost stories, you want to listen to them, why not go to pgttcm? Potbean.com and donate. Become a member of one of our various uh, cults or uh, fan cults. We've got the t-shirt cult, we've got the beer cult, we've got the advert cult, and then we've got the spectral cult for people who just want their names and just want to donate a buck a month. I mean, hey, that's pretty cool. And you can always check us out at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.potbean.com. We're on Facebook, we're on Stitcher, I think we're on Spotify. Uh, We are on Instagram, and we are on Twitter, even though eh, I don't really use it. Thank you so much, and hey, ghost stories, rate, review, subscribe! The Old Mansion Down on Long Beach, that narrow strip of sand which stretches along the New Jersey coast from Barnegat Inlet to the north to Little Egg Harbor Inlet on the south, the summer sojourner at some one of the numerous resorts, which of late years have sprung up every few miles, may, in wandering over the sand dunes just across the bay from the village of Manahawkin, stumble over some charred timbers or vestiges of crumbling chimneys, showing that once, years back, a human habitation has stood there. If the find rouses the jaded curiosity of the visitor sufficiently to impel him to question the weather-beaten old bayman who sails him on his fishing trips he will learn that these relics mark the site of one of the first summer hotels erected on the New Jersey coast. That's where the old mansion stood, 
he will be informed by captain nate or captain sam or whatever particular captain it may chance to be and if by good fortune it chances to be captain jim he will hear a story that will pleasantly pass away the long wait for a sheep's head bite it was my good luck to have secured captain jim for a preceptor in the angler's art during my vacation last summer and his stories and reminiscences of Long Beach were not the least enjoyable features of the two-week sojourn. Captain Jim was not garrulous. Few of the bay men are. They are a sturdy, self-reliant, and self-controlled people, full of strong common sense, but still within that firm belief in the supernatural, which seems inherent in the dwellers by the sea. "'The old mansion,' said Captain Jim, "'or the mansion of health,' for that was its full name, was built way back in 1822, so I've heard my father say. There had been a tavern close by years before that was kept by a man named Kramer, and people used to come from Philadelphia by stage, sixty miles through the pines, to Hawken, and then cross here by boat. Some would stop at Kramer's, and others went down to the beach to Homer's, which was cleared down at the end of the inlet. Finally, some of the wealthy people concluded that they wanted better accommodations than Kramer gave, so they formed the great Swamp Long Beach Company and built the Mansion of Health. I've heard that when it was built, it was the biggest hotel on the coast and was considered a wonder. It was 120 feet long, three stories high, and had a porch running all the way around it, with a balcony on top. It was certainly a big thing for those days. I've heard father tell many a time of the stage loads of gay people that used to come rattling into Hawken, each stage drawn by four horses, and sometimes four or five of them a day in the summer. A good many people, too, used to come in their own carriages and leave them over on the mainland until they were ready to go home. There were gay times at the old mansion then, and it made good times for the people along the shore, too. "'How long did the old mansion flourish, Captain?' I asked. "'Well, for twenty-five or thirty years people came there summer after summer. "'Then they built a railroad to Cape May, "'and that, with the ghosts, settled the mansion of health.' "'What do you mean by the ghosts?' I demanded. "'Well, you see,' said Captain Jim, "'cutting off a mouthful of navy plug. "'The story got around that the old house was haunted.' Some people said there were queer things seen there, and strange noises were heard that nobody could account for. And pretty soon the place got a bad name, and visitors were so few that it didn't pay to keep it open any more. But how did it get the name of being haunted, Captain Jim? I persisted. Why, it was this way, continued the mariner. Maybe you've heard of the time early in the fifties, when the Powhatan was wrecked on the beach here and every soul on board was lost. She was an immigrant ship, and there were over four hundred people aboard, passengers and crew. She came ashore here during the equinoctial storm in September. There wasn't any life-saving stations in them days, and everyone was drowned. You can see the long graves now over in the Hawken churchyard, where the bodies were buried after they came ashore. They put them in three long trenches that were dug from one end of the burying ground to the other. The only people on the beach that night was the man who took care of the old mansion. 
He lived there with his family, and his son-in-law lived with him. He was the wreckmaster for this part of the coast, too. It wasn't till the second day that people from Hawken could get over to the beach, and by that time the bodies all had come ashore, and the wreckmaster had them all piled up on the sand. I was a youngster then, and came over with my father, and I tell you, it was the awfulest sight I ever saw. Them long rows of drowned people, all lying there with their white, still faces turned up to the sky. Some were women with their dead babies clasped tight in their arms, and some were husbands and wives, whose bodies came ashore locked together in a death embrace. I'll never forget that sight as long as I live. Well, when the coroner came and took charge, he began to inquire whether any money or valuables had been found, but the wreckmaster declared that not a solitary coin had been washed ashore. People thought this was rather singular, as the immigrants were, most of them, well-to-do Germans, and were known to have brought a good deal of money with them, but it was concluded that it had gone down with the ship. Well, the poor immigrants were given pauper burial, and the people had begun to forget their suspicions until three or four months later there came another storm, and the sea broke clear over the beach, just below the old mansion, and washed away the sand. Next morning early, two men from Hawkins sailed across the bay and landed on the beach. They walked across on the hard bottom where the sea had washed across, and, when about halfway from the bay, one of the men saw something curious close up against the stump of an old cedar tree. He called the other man's attention to it, and they went over to the stump. What they found was a pile of leather money belts that would have filled a wheelbarrow. Every one was cut open and empty. They had been buried in the sound close by the old stump, and the sea had washed away the covering. The men didn't go any further. They carried the belts to their boats and sailed back to Hawken as fast as the wind would take them. Of course, it made a big sensation, and everybody was satisfied that the wreckmaster had robbed the bodies, if he hadn't done anything worse, but there was no way to prove it, and so nothing was done. The wreckmaster didn't stay around here long after that, though. The people made it too hot for him, and he and his family went away south where it was said he bought a big plantation and a lot of slaves. Years afterward, the story came to Hawkins somehow that he was killed in a barroom brawl, and that his son-in-law was drowned by his boat upsetting while he was out fishing. I don't furnish any affidavits with that part of the story, though. However, after that, nobody lived in the old mansion for long at a time. People would go there, stay a week or two, and leave and at last it was given up entirely to beach parties in the daytime and ghosts at night. But, Captain, you don't really believe the ghost part, do you? I asked. Captain Jim looked down the bay, expectorated gravely over the side of the boat, and answered slowly, Well, I don't know as I would have believed in him if I hadn't seen the ghost. What? I exclaimed. You saw it? Tell me about it. I've always wanted to see a ghost, or next best thing, a man who has seen one. It was one August about 1861, said the captain. I was a young feller then, and with a half dozen more was over on the beach cutting salt hay. We didn't go home at nights, 
but did our own cooking in the old mansion kitchen and at night slept on the piles of hay upstairs we were a reckless lot of scamps and reckoned that no ghosts could scare us there was a big full moon that night and it was as light as day the muskeaters was pretty bad too and it was easier to stay awake than go to sleep along toward midnight me and two other fellers went out on the old balcony and began to race around the house we hollered and yelled and chased each other for half an hour or so and then we concluded we had better go to sleep so we started for the window of the room where the rest were this window was near one end on the ocean side and as i came around the corner i stopped as if i'd been shot and my hair raised straight up on the top of my head right there in front of that window stood a woman looking out over the sea and in her arms she held a little child i saw her as plain as i see you now it seemed to me like an hour she stood there but i don't suppose it was a second then she was gone when i could move i looked around for the other boys and they were standing there paralyzed they had seen the woman too they didn't say much and we didn't sleep much that night and the next night we bunked out on the beach the rest of the crowd made all manner of fun of us but we had had all the ghosts we wanted and i never set foot inside that old house after that when did it burn down captain i asked as jim relapsed into silence somewhere about twenty-five years ago a beach party had been roasting clams in the old oven and in some way the fire got to the woodwork it was as dry as tinder and i hope the ghosts were all burned up with it end of story fourteen an unbidden guest my cousins kate and tom howard married at trinity at easter time concluded to commence housekeeping by taking one of those delightfully expensively furnished unfurnished cottages with which the fashionable watering place of w abounds from whose rear windows one night almost take a plunge into the surf the beach beginning at the back door they went down quite early in may being in a great hurry to try their domestic experiment and as the evenings were still cold they spent them about the open fire spooning it was upon one of those nights about eleven o'clock that they were startled by a noise as of some small object falling soon followed by the sound of heavy footsteps and then quiet again reigned supreme at once tom poker in hand boldly started in search of the burglar followed by kate wildly clutching at his coat-tail and in a state of tremor they looked upstairs under the various beds kate suggesting that in novels they were always to be found there the dining-room was next explored where all seemed well and lastly the kitchen where they found what was evidently a solution of the mystery the burglar had entered by the back door which was found to be unlocked and slightly ajar the first excitement subsiding they returned again to the dining-room where tom upon closer inspection then discovered that one of a pair of quaint little pepper pots wedding gifts was missing and other small articles on the sideboard had been slightly disturbed the next morning when kate mildly remonstrated with the queen of the kitchen for her carelessness 
she received a shock by being told that it was her usual custom to leave the door open, so that it would be easy, convenient, like for the milkmaid. They parted with her, and a new maid was engaged, whose chief qualification for the place that she was most faithful in the discharge of her duties, especially in locking up. While they mourned the loss of the pepper pot, still it seemed so trifling when they thought of that lovely reposé salad bowl, sent by Aunt Julia, which stood nearby, that nothing was said of the loss outside of the family, and the little household settled into its normal state once more of billing and cooing. About a fortnight later, Tom started out one night with an old fisherman, one of the natives, and a local character, to indulge in that delightful pastime, so dear to the heart of man, known as Eline. And as the night was dark, the eels were particularly sporty, so that it was well on towards the wee small hours when Tom at last returned to the cottage. He found all excitement within. Kate was in hysterics, and the new maid, also weeping, was industriously applying the camper bottle to her mistress's nose. The burglar or ghost, as they had now decided, the windows and doors being found to be securely locked this time, had been abroad again, but had succeeded in purloining nothing. His royal ghost ship had amused himself, apparently, by simply walking about. Oh, Tom, he had on such heavy boots and was so dreadfully bold about it, said Kate tearfully. From that time, Kate became nervous and refused to be left alone. Tom started whenever a door creaked, and the treasure departed hurriedly, saying, Faith, the house is haunted, sure. After that, Kate spent her days in girl-hunting, and her nights in answering shadowy advertisements that never materialized. They tried Irish, English, Dutch, and a heathen Chinese, with a sprinkling of colored ladies to vary the monotony. They seemed about to become famous throughout the length and breadth of the land as the family that changes help once a week, when they landed treasure number two. Shortly after her advent, we were all asked down to W, to help celebrate their happiness, and, incidentally, to christen the new dinner set. We were not a little surprised of finding Kate so pale and Tom rather distrait. However, after a delightful dinner, that should have filled with pleasure the most exacting bride, we adjourned to the piazza, leaving the men to the contemplation of their cigars. We were enthusiastic in our praise of the house and congratulated Kate in securing such a prize, when to our horror she burst into tears and said, "'Oh, girls, it's a dreadful place. It's haunted,' and then tearfully proceeded with the details, until we all felt creepy and suggested the parlor and lights. It was not long afterwards that Kate discovered that Tom had also related the ghost story to the men that evening." to which Ned Harris had said, laconically, rats, and Bob Shaw laughingly remarked, Tom, old chap, you really shouldn't take your nightcap so strong. About the first of July the climax came. The ghost walked again, this time taking not only the remaining pepper pot, but also a silver salt cellar. Evidently he had a penchant for small articles, but unlike former times, Everything on the sideboard was in the greatest disorder. Aunt Julia's salad bowl was found on the floor, and not far away the cheese dish, 
with its contents scattered about. This time one of the windows was found half open. A week later a note came to me from Kate, saying that she and Tom had gone to Saratoga to spend the remainder of the season with her mother. The following spring Tom received a note and parcel from Mr. B., the owner of the house at W., which read as follows. Dear Mr. Howard, I send you by express three articles of silver, which my wife suggests may belong to you, as they are marked with your initials, namely, two silver pepper pots and a salt cellar. They were found the other day, during the process of spring house cleaning, in a rat hole, behind the sideboard. I forgot to have the hole stopped up last spring, or to caution you against the water rats. The great fellows will get in, you know. Kind regards to Mrs. Howard. Very truly, John B. The next season the Ghost Club was organized, the badge being a small silver rat, bearing proudly aloft a tiny pepper pot. We thoughtfully offered Tom the presidency, but he declined, with offended dignity, from the effects of which I think he will never fully recover. End of Story 15 THE DEAD WOMAN'S PHOTOGRAPH Virgil Hoyt is a photographer's assistant up at St. Paul, and a man of a good deal of taste. He has been in search of the picturesque all over the West, and hundreds of miles to the north in Canada, and can speak three or four Indian dialects, and put a canoe through the rapids. That is to say, he is a man of an adventurous sort and no dreamer. He can fight well and shoot well and swim well enough to put up a winning race with the Indian boys, and he can sit all day in the saddle and not dream about it at night. Wherever he goes he uses his camera. The world, Hoyt is in the habit of saying to those who sit with him when he smokes his pipe, was created in six days to be photographed. Man, and especially woman, was made for the same purpose. Clouds are not made to give moisture, nor trees to cast shade. They were created for the photographer. In short, Virgil Hoyt's view of the world is whimsical, and he doesn't like to be bothered with anything disagreeable. That is the reason he loathes and detests going to a house of mourning to photograph a corpse. The horribly bad taste of it offends him partly, and partly he is annoyed at having to shoulder, even for a few moments, a part of someone's burden of sorrow. He doesn't like sorrow, and would willingly canoe five hundred miles up the cold Canadian rivers to get rid of it. Nevertheless, as assistant photographer, it is often his duty to do this very kind of thing. Not long ago he was sent for by a rich Jewish family at St. Paul to photograph the mother, who had just died. He was very much put out, but he went. He was taken to the front parlor where the dead woman lay in her coffin. It was evident that there was some excitement in the household and that a discussion was going on, but Hoyt wasn't concerned, and so he paid no attention to the matter. The daughter wanted the coffin turned on end, in order that the corpse might face the camera properly, but Hoyt said he could overcome the recumbent attitude and make it appear that the face was taken in the position it would naturally hold in life and so they went out and left him alone with the dead. The face was a strong and positive one, such as may often be seen among Jewish matrons. 
Hoyt regarded it with some admiration, thinking to himself that she was a woman who had been used to having her own way. There was a strand of hair out of place. He pushed it back from her brow. A bud lifted its head too high from among the roses on her breast and spoiled the contour of the chin, so he broke it off. He remembered these things later very distinctly, and that his hand touched her bare face two or three times. Then he took the photographs and left the house. He was very busy at the time, and several days elapsed before he was able to develop the plates. He took them from the bath, in which they had lain with a number of others, and went to work upon them. There were three plates. He hadn't taken that number merely as a precaution against any accident. They came up well, but as they developed he became aware of the existence of something in the photograph which had not been apparent to his eye. The mysterious always came under the head of the disagreeable with him, and was therefore to be banished, so he made only a few prints and put the things away out of sight. He hoped that something would intervene to save him from attempting an explanation. But it is a part of the general perplexity of life that things do not intervene as they ought when they ought. So one day his employer asked him what had become of those photographs. He tried to evade him, but it was futile, and he got out the finished photographs and showed them to him. The older man sat staring at them a long time. Hoyt, said he at length, you're a young man, and I suppose you've never seen anything like this before. But I have. Not exactly the same thing, but similar phenomena have come my way a number of times since I went into the business, and I want to tell you there are things in heaven and earth not dreamt of. Oh, I know all that, Tommy Rot, cried Hoyt angrily. But when anything happens, I want to know the reason why and how it is done. All right, said his employer. Then you might explain why and how the sun rises. But he humored the younger man sufficiently to examine with him the bath in which the plates were submerged and the plates themselves. All was as it should be, but the mystery was there and could not be done away with. Hoyt hoped against hope that the friends of the dead woman would somehow forget about the photographs, but of course the wish was unreasonable, and one day the daughter appeared and asked to see the photographs of her mother. "'Well, to tell the truth,' stammered Hoyt, "'those didn't come out as well as we could wish.' "'But let me see them,' persisted the lady. "'I'd like to look at them anyway.' "'Well, now,' said Hoyt, trying to be soothing, as he believed it was always best to be with women. To tell the truth, he was an ignoramus where women were concerned. I think it would be better if you didn't see them. There are reasons why. He ambled on like this, stupid man that he was. And, of course, the Jewess said she would see those pictures without any further delay. So poor Hoyt brought them out and placed them in her hand, and then ran for the water pitcher and had to be at the bother of bathing her forehead to keep her from fainting. For what the lady saw was this. Over her face and flowers and the head of the coffin fell a thick veil, the edges of which touched the floor in some places. It covered the features so well that not a hint of them was visible. There was nothing over mother's face, cried the lady at length. Not a thing, acquiesced Hoyt. I know because I had occasion to touch her face just before I took the picture. I put some of her hair back from her brow. 
"'What does it mean, then?' asked the lady. "'You know better than I. There's no explanation in science. Perhaps there's some in psychology.' "'Well,' said the lady, stammering a little and coloring, "'mother was a good woman, but she always wanted her own way, and she always had it, too.' "'Yes?' "'And she never would have her picture taken. She didn't admire herself.' She said no one should ever see a picture of hers. So, said Hoyt meditatively, well, she's kept her word, hasn't she? The two stood looking at the pictures for a time. Then Hoyt pointed to the open blaze in the grate. Throw them in, he commanded. Don't let your father see them. Don't keep them yourself. They wouldn't be good things to keep. That's true enough, said the lady slowly. And she threw them in the fire. Then Virgil Hoyt brought out the plates and broke them before her eyes. And that was the end of it, except that Hoyt sometimes tells a story to those who sit beside him when his pipe is lighted. End of Story 16